Extraordinary. Leader. Innovative. Integrity. Honest. Courageous. Curious. Thoughtful. Brave. Unafraid. There is a place where technology and art meet, where work and play are one and the same. When the threads of curiosity are pulled in this place, the spark of innovation ripples across industries. Those who make this place their home are giants, titans who pursue creative passion while leaving their mark. Creative. Flexible. Brilliant. Clever. Confident. They are courageous thought leaders set on changing the practice of dentistry and their corner of the world. More than the sum of their parts, we deconstruct the traits that bind these uncommon innovators. Humble, daring, disciplined, playful, principled, spontaneous. To discover what makes them contrary to ordinary, where we explore the extraordinary. Hi there, I'm Dr. Kim Cooch, host and founder at Carry Free. I'm fascinated by what makes the paradigm shifters, world shakers, and art makers tick. Let's embark on a journey. Extraordinary is a place where ordinary people choose to exist. Together, we will trek the peaks of possibility, illuminate the depths of resilience, and navigate the boundless landscape of innovation. To discover how some of the most innovative dentists and thought leaders unlocked their potential and became extraordinary. On this season of Contrary to Ordinary, we explore the motivation, lives, and character of the innovators who see limitless potential around them. The people behind some of the largest paradigm shifts in the practice of dentistry. There aren't many people who are willing to raise their hand and say, I think this can be done better. To me, Breaking away from tradition and challenging the status quo are the hallmarks of an extraordinary person. Today's guest is Angus Walls, who across his 40 years in the field has excelled at finding better ways to care for his patients. Since 2013, Angus has worked as the director of the Edinburgh Dental Institute at the beautiful University of Edinburgh in Scotland. Between 2017 and 2018, Angus served as the 94th president of the International Association for Dental Research and opened his inaugural address by saying, I've had an almost career-long interest in oral health and aging. He's always put this vulnerable population at the front and center of his work, tackling the complex problems that this group face with creativity and compassion. Prior to his current position, Angus spent 18 years at Newcastle University as professor of restorative dentistry, only a few miles from his family home. However, he's never been afraid to follow opportunity, even if there is a strong tradition in the UK to practice where you studied. Angus was born in the northeast of England into a family full of medical practitioners. My mother was a community pediatrician, and mm-hmm. my father was just a general practitioner. I'm sorry, he was. I I shouldn't say just. He was a general practitioner, (laughs) and obviously, there's a sort of a debate: Do I want to follow in that family path? Uh And I should say that my grandfather was a surgeon. My aunt was one of the first human geneticists in in the northeast of England. My uncle was a consultant uh, physician in a hospital setting. So there's a lot of medicine floating around in the background. And my brother was two years into a medical program. Oh, wow. So you got a whole family. Whole family pedigree of medicine. Right. And did I want to follow that family pedigree? And I had a long, long conversation with my father about what he found to be 
satisfying in life. And basically, he didn't find his work per se particularly satisfying because what he said to me was that in a day, if he could provide a diagnosis and treatment for 10% of the people that he saw, he thought that was pretty good. And 20% probably didn't really have a problem. And the other 70% had to be referred on into the specialist service to get diagnostics done and all that sort of stuff. He got his satisfaction out of leadership and politics and all the other bits that go alongside being a senior member of the medical community. And I thought about that and I thought, I didn't, didn't particularly want that level of lack of personal satisfaction. Right. So my father was also skilled with his hands and he taught me all sorts of stuff, how to lay bricks, how to build, how to do plumbing, how to do home electrics, the right. works. Right. And I realized that I really enjoyed that practical piece. And so did some works experience. I looked at quite a lot of stuff in general surgery. But in those days, general surgery was pretty crude, and some bits of it, frankly, still are. You know, the orthopedic surgeons still get out of drill, and, and a big one. Yeah. Um, and decided that that really wasn't for me. Plastics might have been, but no, going into medical school with the idea at the end of it, I'm going to become a consultant plastic surgeon, was just a bit too far-fetched. And I did some work experience with my local dentist and realized that the, that level of, of patient engagement and that level of really fine precision work was something that would appeal to me. So breaking the family mold, I applied to dental school and went up to dental school in 1974 in the local school in Newcastle, so 10 miles up the road. I studied there uh, in the UK system, dentistry. You go in at 18, you come out five years later as a fully-fledged dentist, so there's no graduate school piece. And graduated in 1979. And at that stage, then, there was the question, you know, what do you do next? And I was really interested in the more advanced stuff. So at the age of 23, I decided I've got to stop living with mum and dad. I've got to get away from Newcastle. So I went to work as an attendant. The post was a house officer job in a place called Bristol in the southwest of England. Oh, right. yeah. So geographically as far away from Newcastle as you could get in a dental school in the UK. And I worked there for six months, went right through the specialties. So everything from oral medicine to oral and maxillofacial surgery with bits of restorative and peds and prosthodontics. And I was quite unusual because most people did house jobs where they trained. And so I was odd because I wasn't a Bristol trainee. And I came with a completely different mindset. So I remember walking into the removable prost clinic and looking around the removable prost clinic. And there were pictures on the walls of dentures and all the sort of things you find in prost clinics. And the, my first patient needed a new partial denture. So I took some preliminary impressions and I sent them into the lab and I asked the lab for a surveyor. And the senior technician said, what do you want a surveyor for? <laughs> to survey the car so I can design the denture. And he said, but those are Professor Berry, the professor of prosthetics. Those are his denture designs. Those are what you use. Fortunately for me, there was an NHS consultant working in the same unit who had previously trained in Newcastle. 
And he just happened to walk past and he said, he said to the, both of us, where did you train? And I trained in Newcastle, sir. And he said to the senior technician, this young man knows about prosthodontics. Give him a surveyor. Wow. <laughs> so I got my surveyor and I surveyed the cast and designed it and made a venture. The professor of prosthetics when he came back went, was apoplectic. But I was eternally grateful to John Farrell, the consultant who intervened on my behalf. But I learnt quite a lot when I was there and was still mulling over what I wanted to do. And one of the things I think a lot of dental students find interesting, attractive, is oral maxillofacial surgery. It's the, the most dramatic bit. So my next job was an oral maxillofacial surgery job in a place called Stoke-on-Trent, which is about 35, 40 miles north of, of Birmingham, right in the middle of the country, very close to the M6, big, big motorway, lots of road accidents. There's quite a lot of heavy industry in Stoke. There's a big local mining industry, but also it's very famous because that's where all the potteries are. So that's where Wedgwood and Crown Derby and all the fantastic oh, right. UK yeah, yeah, China yeah, is made. Yeah. And I remember going into my first clinic in Stoke and sitting down and, you know, you're doing your clerking for patients and what's your job? I'm a saga maker's bottom knocker. <laughs> and I just looked at this guy as though he'd come off the moon. I hadn't got a clue what that was. He had some problems with his wisdom teeth. We arranged for his wisdom teeth to come out, and he left. And then my dental nurse turned to me and said, you haven't got a clue what he did, did you? I said, no. Nope. Okay. So the saga is the pile of clay pots that are ready to fire. Okay. So the saga maker stacks the pots in the kiln. Oh, Okay. And when they fired, the saga maker's bottom knocker knocks all of the, 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 the ah, fire clay right. yeah, out yeah. and retie retrieves the fired pots. So this was the guy who was responsible for getting the plates out of the kilns in the right. Wedgwood pottery, uh, which would then be decorated and made into the beautiful right. that we see yeah. today. A really, really skillful, difficult right. yeah. task. And it made me realize that you had to understand what local people meant and did and what their job meant to them. You really need to understand people to be able to provide good care for them. Right. I enjoyed IMFS, but the one thing I actually missed was patient contact. Mm -hmm. Because most, like most big surgical disciplines, you saw somebody, you did a procedure, and then they went away. Right. And that wasn't for me. Yeah. And the other thing which I'd recognized when I was applying for jobs was that whenever I applied for a job, I was asked why I hadn't worked in Newcastle. Because the tradition at the time was you did your first house job in the school where you trained. And I hadn't done that because I wanted to get away from home, so I had a really good reason. But I could sense there was a question sitting there, you know, was this guy such a pain in the fundamental that they didn't want him and he had to go somewhere else? Right. So I decided to go back to Newcastle. I went back there in January 1981, and I left Newcastle in December 2012. Angus was, and still is, a rebel who had the courage to break the mold. From deviating from family tradition to standing up for his prosthodontic patient in Bristol, Angus has always deliberately tried to search for new ways of doing things better. This pioneering spirit followed Angus back home to Newcastle. 
worked at a couple of jobs within the hospital because the tradition at the time was you had to do three years of fundamentally apprenticeship in all disciplines before you started a focus. And then you did an exam, which is called Fellowship in Dental Surgery from one of the surgical royal colleges. And when I was about to do my fellowship, I was mentored by a chap called John Murray. Now, John's a pediatric dentist. He came to Newcastle when I was in my second last year, my penultimate year as a dental student. And he happened to teach me as a dental student. I remember one clinic where I was having real difficulty getting this kid to behave and have some local anesthetic and went, you know, did all of the usual stuff of drawing a shape on his thumbnail with a burr and all of this stuff. And eventually he got, he got a local anesthetic and did a tiny restoration. And John was just watching me and came up to me after that. That was really impressive. Uh, we need to make sure you've got the right facilities the next time. But I was given the privilege of using the houseman's chair, which had a three-in-one for the next, next time this kid came in. And I went through the same acclimatization process. And I started to drill a hole in this, in this lad's tooth. And he just reached up and he grabbed hold of my hand, the hand with the, with the turbine in it, and he pulled it out of his mouth. Now, I was so concerned to avoid his upper teeth, oh, his lower yeah. teeth, his tongue, oh, yeah. his, his lip, his lip yeah. that I forgot that my thumb was just outside oh. the mouth. So... Diamond burr, full choke, in, oh. a, in a whisper, straight oh. through my thumbnail. Oh, ouch. Um, at which point, I swore at the child. It's the only time I've ever sworn in front of a patient in my yeah. professional yeah. career. Yeah. And John Barry came over to me and said, I think I'd better take over here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Sure>. But <laughs> fortunately, it didn't, it didn't put him off me. Um, and so it must have been, this would be 1982. Two, uh -huh. there was an opportunity to apply for a PhD fellowship from the UK's Medical Research Council. So this is, um, it's akin to the NIHR in terms right. of, of Gravitas. Right. And I worked with John Murray as a paediatric dentist and John McCabe, the material scientist, to build a proposal around the use of these new adhesive techniques and materials in children's dentition. And wasn't initially successful, but I then went on to get my fellowship and the MRC had had somebody who pulled out of a program and I was next on the reserves, so I got my training fellowship. Three years full-time PhD. Now that's, for a clinician in the UK at the time, I think I was the second or third ever. I was going to say that had to be extremely They're unusual. very rare, right. very rare. Yeah. So when I came to the end of my PhD, it was the first PhD out of paediatric dentistry in Newcastle ever. Wow. And I was under quite a lot of pressure to then become a pediatric dentist, as you might expect, because they wanted to you know, follow on the success, et cetera, right. et cetera. And I don't have a problem at all working with children who aren't mentally and physically challenged. But I have a real difficulty with working with the mentally and physically challenged uh -huh. child and the senior clinicians in that discipline spend all of their clinical time right, exactly. working with that client group. Right. And I just didn't think I could cope mentally and physically for the rest of my career with doing that. Right. And kudos to those people that oh, do. Oh, massively. Absolutely you know, massively. Because I, I can't think of almost a greater challenge in yeah. dentistry. But I just realized 
I wasn't one of them. Yeah. Um, I'm not either. <laughs> I, I recognized that early in my career. <laughs> so I had a, a, an interesting but quite difficult discussion with John Murray um, mm -hmm. because he obviously wanted me to follow on and become a pediatric dentist. And I can understand that. I was going to say he probably had some pretty high expectations for you. Yeah. 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 And as it happens at the time in the UK, there had been a, a moratorium, a, a ban on recruitment of new university academic staff across the whole academic field for about five years. And so there was a recognition that there was a real hole in the pipeline uh -huh. for academics. And there was a uh -huh. scheme launched called the New Blood Scheme to find people who had interesting ideas uh, in interesting areas to come into clinical academia. And so there were three New Blood lecturers in dentistry, uh, myself, Jenny Kirkham from Leeds, uh -huh. yeah. uh, again, a mineralized tissue biologist. So it wasn't just for clinicians, it was yeah. right across the piece. And Eddie Lynch, who was working at the oh, time yeah. oh, um, at Queen Mary in London. Yeah. And Eddie and my programs were both about the same general subject, which was oral health care for older people. I mean, you went from one end of the spectrum to the other. You went from pediatric dentist, and then you shifted like all the way to care for the elderly. So what triggered that shift? I knew I wanted to work with adults rather than children. Uh -huh. And I also knew that I wanted an academic career. And for better or for worse, academic careers are built on ability to attract grant income and funding. Yeah. And it's the same the world over. And I looked at the areas of dentistry, of adult restorative dentistry, and what might potentially be possible in terms of grant income. And uh, my PhD had been in dental materials. Was dental materials a viable place to do a clinical career beyond that? And fundamentally, I felt the answer was no. And so in 86, we were just beginning to think about reducing numbers of edentulists, people having lots of teeth into old age, right. how are they going to be managed, the problems of, of uh, non-caries tooth loss, the problem, tooth surface loss, the problems right. of, of caries, how that could go forward. So really it was a, it was a pragmatic decision. Uh -huh. It was an area that was ripe for exploration. Right. And in Newcastle, there was an extremely good Institute for Aging and Geriatric Medicine. Uh -huh. So there were opportunities to work with alongside medical colleagues, which would give greater access to grant income, fundamentally. It wasn't um, a sort of road to Damascus moment. It was more a, where am I most likely to be successful moment. Right. Even when he was jumping through the hoops of grant funding, Angus went about things his own way. His two mentors supported him and guided him through the trials and tribulations in academic life. Angus has made so many contributions to the field, but for him, the most important has been raising the profile of the elderly and their care. But this group has a particular set of challenges to overcome. It's not necessarily people who have complete dentures who are the biggest challenge. It's the people who have one complete denture against a natural dentition, oh, yeah. which is in the UK, about 15% of the over 65-year-old population. And the lack of stability of that complete prosthesis is just appalling. Oh, man. I had like two patients that had 
a mandibular denture opposing natural maxillary teeth. Mm. Literally, that was the greatest challenge managing those poor patients. And ultimately, we ended up with implant-supported dentures on the bottom, which was a huge improvement. It was still a challenge. I had one patient that would break that lower denture and I put metal substrate in it and, but he had so much force and didn't have a sense of how much, and he was a big guy, big jaws, you know. It's like he'd walk into the office and I knew that he had broken his denture again. And I'm like, well, you know, what are you eating? <laughs> you know, what are you doing? Which, 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 which bag of bolts are you yeah. just seeing this time? Yeah. 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 I've been there in, the same, in the, same, the same place. So the diet in elderly people, and I mean, and that's a challenge as well, right? It is. And part of what I've spent the last, I guess, 10 to 15 years trying to do is, first of all, to try to get dentists to realize that, yes, you can make somebody new prosthesis, but if you don't at the same time intervene with them and say, why don't you try some of the foods that you couldn't previously chew, they won't change. And they won't change because you know, the, the, very often the, the patient that you're working for isn't, on, isn't the one who does the cooking or the shopping or whatever, right, right. and that's all habit. And so you, you don't get that innovation unless you trigger that innovation. Yeah. And just trying to get dentists to realize the importance of doing that and the importance of oh, the, the need for different dietary advice in older people. I don't know what it's like in the UK, mm. but in the US, it's like we were never trained to talk about diet with our patients as dentists, right? Okay. Yeah. And sadly, neither are the physicians. We have a health crisis in the US, not a health care crisis. Mm. We have a health crisis. And I think a lot of us diet, obese. I mm. mean, you trace that obesity right back to, you know, and then obesity, and then you mm. talk about hypertension mm. and heart disease and cancer. And, and diabetes. You know, I mean, yeah. you just, yeah. and diabetes, you just goes down the list. Yeah. I mean, you just check every box yeah. as you go down. And all of that comes back to diet. Mm. And I think most dentists aren't comfortable talking about diet. You know, for me to sit down and go, Angus, so tell me what your average day is like and what kind of food you eat. Well, number one, we don't get paid for that. Mm. Newcastle was the first dental school in the UK to appoint a lecturer in nutrition science. Yeah. And that's Paula Moynan, who was two iterations after me as president of IDR, but was in Newcastle for a long time. And hence, I suppose, our focus, in some of our focus, on diet and health. Right. So I'm probably more comfortable talking about diet than most are. Yeah, yeah, I would would think so. And more aware of what you should be talking to the average 70-year-old about. Right. Which isn't about, you know, because you've got to reduce your calorie intake because you haven't got as much muscle, so you don't need as much, you don't need as many calories. Right. But you still need to maintain the same amount of, of, of micronutrients. Yep. So you need a nutrient-dense diet. Yeah. Um, and if you tell the average older person to eat less, they just do that, they eat less. And so the nutrient density isn't there. Looking outside of what dentists are comfortable doing to help elderly patients live better, healthier lives is one of the reasons that Angus is extraordinary. So with his many years of experience, where does Angus see dentistry in the UK in the next five years? Huge chunks of dentistry are delivered through the NHS. There's also about probably 30 to 40% which is delivered by independent private payment. And there's a whole raft of stuff in the press at the moment about fewer and fewer dentists working for the NHS and more and more dentists working privately. And ironically, quite a lot of that has been driven by the pandemic 
because during the pandemic, dentists were closed down for ooh, 12 weeks. Yeah. Three, yep. uh, and then they were allowed to open with very controlled care for patients. Yep. And so they got used to spending lots of time with a patient. They got used to having time between patients. And they don't like going back to the NHS treadmill. The NHS dentistry is a bit of a treadmill. Yeah, it is a treadmill. Yeah, particularly in that in that regard. Yeah. yeah, I can't help but think, sadly, that dentistry as we know it in the NHS is very much on the rocks and might fade out altogether. With the NHS, you still have an access to care issue, particularly like yeah. probably in more of the rural communities and in places which don't have dental schools. Uh -huh. So the dental schools in the UK aren't evenly distributed around the country. Right. They're in the major population centers. That... Well, not even all of those. You've got, in England, Newcastle, which is in the northeast, and then there's a whole swathe almost in a line. So Leeds, Sheffield, right. Manchester, and Liverpool, which span across the country. And then you go south to Birmingham, and then it's Bristol and London. Yeah. So there's nothing between Birmingham and London, and that's 120 miles um, and 200 miles out to the coast. It's a huge area. Right. And dentists who go to dental schools, a big chunk of them, probably close to 50 to 60% of them, work within 60 miles of the dental school where they're trained. And that's a UK phenomenon. Right, yeah. Um, yeah. And so there are real problems with getting dentists to go and work in some of these places. And that was manageable in the UK whilst we were part of the EU because European dentists could come to work in the UK uh, with a European dental uh, qualification okay. and were quite happy to do so because if you graduated in Poland or Lithuania oh, yeah, or like somewhere, was, yeah. coming to the UK was actually quite a nice place to be and you earned a lot of money relatively. Oh, yeah. But they've stopped coming post-Brexit. So there are some areas of the country, and uh, in Scottish terms, the, the biggest problem at the present moment is in Dumfries and Galloway. So as, as the chief dental officer said the other day, go up to the border on the west coast and turn left. And there's a big swathe of country, population of, I guess, about 500,000 people. Uh -huh. They used to rely heavily on overseas dentists. They aren't there anymore. The local UK trained dentists who used to work at the NHS are under so much pressure to see patients that... They're all moving out of NHS care because there are enough people who can afford to pay for their dental treatment that they can have a much better lifestyle uh, working privately with a smaller number of patients. But that's leaving a massive problem in terms of access. Yeah. But here in Edinburgh, you know, at the present moment, we don't have an undergraduate school. We have a problem attracting people to come and work here. It's right. a beautiful city. Oh, it is a beautiful uh, city. One of my favorite cities. And there is a problem with... For the last, I suppose, since the pandemic, it's been just about impossible to for somebody coming to Edinburgh to find an NHS dentist. Huh. So we're now three years in, in a big urban conurbation with, how many are there? Four, four massive universities, the whole of the civil service for Scotland, a massive population turnover. And all that population turnover hasn't been able to access dental care. Yeah. And dentists are pulling out of the NHS. The problems facing dentistry in the NHS are huge and difficult to solve. It's no surprise that the time that the pandemic afforded dentists to spend with their patients was something a lot of them didn't want to give up. 
After many decades of service, Angus is looking to officially retire from dentistry in December of 2023. So what will Angus do next? I'm going to stop being a dentist. I don't want to be people knocking on my door saying, can you come and do this bit of service or this bit of patient treatment? So I'm going to come off the dental register and stop being a dentist. How is that going to feel for you? In a practical sense, for the last five years, uh-huh. I've done relatively little clinical dentistry. Right. Uh, so it won't be a huge change in that sense, right. but it will be a change in my options. Uh-huh. Having said that, I'm 67. I My eyesight isn't as good as it used to be. Yeah. I cut a crown preparation on a, t- on a tooth that hadn't previously been prepared 10 days ago for the first time in six years. Oh, wow, yeah. Because the sort of work that I've been doing for the last six years has been sorting out somebody else's problems um, rather than new treatment. Right. What am I going to do with my time? I love cooking, so I'm going to learn to cook better. I'm going to play a lot more golf. Right. I just become vice captain of the golf club, which will keep me busy for a while. Oh, yeah. And I'm applying for uh, jobs which are called non-executive director roles. Uh So these are people who sit on the boards of organizations who provide oversight and governance for the organization. So I'm looking for a non-exec role in healthcare. Right. So you can take your expertise and and, and help benefit. Well, uh, yeah. I've learned a lot in 40 years. Yeah. And I think that... Some of that could be of use. Yeah. Uh, it's just oh, a question of, of finding I mean, the right job in the right place. The jobs are typically not notionally a day a week. Right. Uh, in reality, probably two days a week. You get you get a small but, yeah. You but, get a small stipend, but yeah. they keep you interested. They keep your brain going. Right. And the most important thing for me is my brain is as important an organ to exercise as my arms and my legs are. Yep. And keeping my brain active. Uh, is going to be, I think, the biggest challenge I'll face. I think you'll keep your brain active. You know, I don't think you're going to just up and stop that, Angus. I mean, you know. And I've still got some PhD students on going, and, you know, yeah. the, the, there's other stuff that I'll be doing. Yeah. I just won't be, I won't be a clinical dentist. Right. And the university here has already said to me they, they want me to do some consulting work. And, yeah, yeah. yeah. So you'll have a flexible schedule and yeah. be able to call your own hours and, and, and be able to contribute and enjoy your life at yeah. the same time. Angus, we've covered a lot of topics, mm. and I thank you for being open and, and talking about all those. You know, it's interesting as I interview more and more people, and I'm learning more and more, and and looking at common threads between mm. people. The question I come up with: Do you think extraordinary is innate? Do you think extraordinary people were born that way with that internal clock and drive, or do you think it's something that you can learn, or is it something that is it a place? where you make a conscious decision to take your life. I don't think I've ever deliberately made a conscious decision to do something extraordinary because I wouldn't, until you asked me to do this interview, right. have ever thought of myself or anything that I'd done as extraordinary. But that's just me being British. I think my father was an extraordinary person. And so I lived with an extraordinary person for the first 25 years of my life. You learn by example, if nothing else. I said my father was a GP, but he did a degree in chemistry starting in 1938. 
Along came the second war. They accelerated the chemistry program. So he finished a three-year degree in two years. He then went into the UK Navy. He was a pilot in the fleet air arm and flew all the way through the war. Of the 47 people in his flight school, two survived. Uh, so you're lucky just to I'm be here. I'm lucky to be here. <laughs> uh, and then he went off and did medicine. Yeah. Uh, and he became this extraordinary servant to his patients. Uh-huh. And that was one exemplar for me. Right. And the other exemplar, I think, I've talked about John Murray as right. a mentor. And just John's work ethic and his ability to, to recognize the talents of others. And it's strange. You, you asked me about mentors and the people who had a strong influence on my life. But some of the people who've had a strong influence on my life, the influence has been almost the opposite. They've shown me what not to do. Uh-huh. So one of my previous bosses, who I won't give a name, he was incredibly disorganized. Uh-huh. Uh, he was just awful to travel with. Because I once worked out when I was traveling with him that he had... 17 pockets in his, oh, in his clothing yeah. and he never knew which one he'd put his, his, his bits and pieces into. and it was a, you know, all of this sort of stuff but that and that was just one example of him right so right. I, I i organized myself right and another was an individual who i looked up to a lot when i was young and a junior researcher but then became aware that he had become very arrogant and focused on what he wanted out of life, not what was best for the place that I was working and where he was in a leadership position. Uh, And I've always tried to have that element of, I suppose it's service Uh is the word I'm looking for, to, to support an organization. So I came up to Edinburgh 10 years ago. The first seven years were the sort of things that, you would expect. Right. And then along came the pandemic. And I spent six months organizing and responsible for urgent dental care for a million people. Wow. I have never worked so hard in my life. Oh, yeah. And it's probably one of the reasons why I'm, um, I'm really comfortable with the idea of, <laughs> of, of retiring dying. now. But I, I suppose I felt able to do that uh-huh. because of all of the stuff that was sitting in the background there. Right. And I just thought about Frankly, I thought about what my father would have done. He would yeah. simply have rolled his sleeves up and he'd yeah. have got on with it because that was the sort of person he was. Right. Sounds like your dad had a huge level of integrity. When my father died, I was in the middle of doing some landscaping in the garden. And one of the things I had to do was build a stone wall. And it was quite a complex thing because you had to shape the stones right. around oh, the curve. Yeah. And I was, the, the weekend after he passed away, I just wanted to, lose myself in something. So I got on with some of this. And I was working out how to cut a piece of stone. And I got out an angle grinder and I thought, oh, you can, you can. And then I thought about it, hang on a second. How would dad have done it? And he wouldn't have used an angle grinder. He'd used a, a big a thing called a brick bolster, which is a three inch wide cold chisel. Right. And you know, with a hammer and cut round and round the stone and eventually yeah. it cracks in the right place. And I used a brick bolster all that day. And for the next five years when I lived in that house, every time I looked at that wall, I thought to myself, that's how Dad would have done it. Yeah. And it was really satisfying. Yeah, oh, that's beautiful. 
you know, Angus, this, that, that's really a great story, I think, to, to wrap this up on. I thank you so much for My sharing pleasure. your life story. Hearing about the mentors in Angus' life tells you a great deal about his character. Just like his father, he's a man of integrity who forged his own path advocating for the care of vulnerable people. Thank you so much to Angus Walls at the University of Edinburgh for being a guiding light in the field. I truly believe that you'll find fulfillment and maybe a little bit of rest in your retirement. And thank you for coming along on this journey with me today. Around here, we aim to inspire and create connections. We can't do it without you. If this conversation moved you, made you smile, or scratched that little itch of curiosity today, please share it with the extraordinary people in your life. And if you do one thing today, let it be extraordinary. Extraordinary.